Jesus, we are nothing without you. Lord, you, you give us meaning and purpose. God, you give us a hope and a future. Jesus, you, Lord, you see worth in us. Jesus, you call us your sons and daughters. Even though we have strayed away. Lord, this morning, we want to ask that you would draw near to us as we draw near to you. Lord, that we would hear you clearly. Jesus, and that whatever we came in here searching for, Lord, if it's hope, if it's healing, if it's restoration, if it's faith, if it's joy, Lord, I pray that it would be found in you. Jesus, we love you so much and we are excited that you're going to draw near to us today. God, I pray that just over this building, God, that you would, you would place a holy protection. God, that our hearts, our ears, our minds, they're ready to hear your truth. God, and I ask that nothing would interfere with that. Jesus, we love you. And it's in your precious and holy name. Amen. Hey, guys. How are you? I haven't gotten a chance to talk to everybody this morning, so are you good? You good? Shirley. Hey, Shirley. <laughs> uh, she w had traveled a distant to distant lands recently, so it's good to see your smiling face. Well, this morning, um, I'm going to start with a little bit of a story. Uh, in the late 1990s, there was a man named Professor Michael Christian. And you ask, why is he important? And I'll tell you why. He set out to answer one question. How can you become the world's best kisser? Yeah, some people called him Dr. Smooch for short, okay? Um, and he set out to study this. And he studied it so much that he produced two books on the subject. And he covered everything from the liposuction kiss <laughs> uh, to the upside down kiss. And he was a professional on the topic. However, quoted after he published his second book, he was quoted saying this in a newspaper article. <laughs> Women's expectations are too high. <laughs> he said, every time I kiss them, they always say things like, you're kidding me. You wrote a book on the art of kissing, and this is the best you can do? <laughs> it's like, guys are like, seriously, somebody said it, right? Uh, and now, Professor Christian is not the first person to fall into a trap like this. Uh, for centuries, we have had people that research and write and speak about things that they themselves can't do. Uh, this is where the famous saying, uh, those who can't do what? Teach. And this is not just to Professor Christian. Uh, C.S. Lewis, for instance, he, he said that if anybody, in one of the prefaces of his book, he said if anyone found out who wrote this book, 
they would think that the writing was ridiculous. Uh, John Wesley himself, he conceded after years of ministry to not have attained the level of perfection he thought was possible. Uh, and then in the Bible, Paul admits in Philippians that he has not been made perfect. And this points to a very simple truth about humankind, that often it is easy to define what is difficult to achieve. It's easy to define what is difficult to achieve. It's easy for me to wish somebody a happy marriage without getting into all the nitty-gritty details of the decades of work that it's going to require of you. You know, it's easy for me to picture a world that is free from war. But if history proves us anything, it's that that's incredibly difficult to achieve. And this is the albatross of our sermon series, Homecoming. Because often Christians fall into this trap where we talk about things that we ourselves have no idea how to achieve in this world. Now, Christ gives us a lot of lofty charges, but I think the one that takes the cake is holiness. That somehow my life will eventually look more and more like Jesus and either eventually or miraculously, miraculously through the power of the Holy Spirit, I am 100% driven by Jesus. No pressure, right? <laughs> And what I want to do over the next few weeks is that I want to answer some questions about holiness. And I want to start asking even more questions than I answer. And I want to ask the question, how can my life be holy? How can my life be sanctified? Is it attainable? What does it cost? Am I doing it right? <laughs> and see what we find in Scripture. And so we're going to start this series called Homecoming. And at the beginning of every series, I like to start with just a moment of prayer. Um, a moment of prayer to quiet ourselves and say, Lord, we commit to do whatever you say, and we commit to listening to you very adamantly. So would you pray with me? Lord, the topic of holiness is massive. Lord, when I look at my life, I see so many ways that I don't look like you. God, but the hope and the truth is that I don't have to live like that forever. That I can live like you live. And I can live with a life that is full. Your word says life to the fullest. Jesus, I pray that throughout the, the next five weeks of this series, that we would get to look more and more like you. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. So in order to start our conversation about holiness, we have to go back, way, way, way far back, to the beginning of time itself, uh, in Genesis 3. Now, we're going to start in this story. Uh, we all kind of know this story that Eve was tempted to eat the fruit in the garden. And I want to start this story at the very first lie that was ever spoken in the entire history of the earth. So we're going to start in Genesis 3. Verse 4. You won't die, the serpent replied to the woman. God knows that your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it, and you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. And the woman was convinced. She saw that the tree was beautiful and its fruit looked delicious, and she wanted the wisdom it would give her. 
So she took some fruit and ate it. Then she gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it too. At that time, moment, or at that moment, their eyes were opened and suddenly felt shame at their nakedness. So they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. So at the beginning of time, mankind falls for this one basic lie. And that is that there was a better way to meet their needs than what God had provided. That there was a better way to meet their needs than what God had offered. You know, when we were, uh, in the beginning, we were created with basic human needs. Things for nourishment and protection and rest and community. And that is shown in the architecture of the garden itself. That it's alive and vibrant with plants and animals and a companion and life. And humanity took a turn and they started to believe that God was withholding something from them. Now, uh, I grew up on the back roads of South Dakota and all around my house, like no matter how far you went, physically possible, it was gravel roads. Now, when you fall on pavement, that's one thing. But when you skin your knee on gravel, that's a different story. <laughs> you know, that makes pavement look like a mattress, okay? And I remember when I was growing up, I'd go out on my bike, and we had this big hill right next to my house, and I would zoom down that sucker, you know? Like God himself could not catch up with me. I was woo in the wind, and I had a banana seat bike, so you know it was legit. Uh, but anyway, so I would zoom down that hill, and you know, nine times out of ten, I was fine. But that one time, <laughs> no, no, I would skin both of my legs, both of my knees, all the way down, and so I'd have to walk, weepily walk my bike back to my house. And I remember my mom, she would pick me up, and she'd set me on the bathroom counter. And then she would grab the dreaded hydrogen peroxide. And every single time, I would say, no, 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 no. Like, there has to be another way. Could we please do something else? Can we do something else? And, and so, and there was no other way. But I thought, maybe, just maybe, there is a bottle of peroxide hidden in the back of that cabinet that says it does not sting, and she was withholding it from me. But there wasn't. No, this was it. And she knew that I needed it because she wanted to meet me to be healthy and happy and still have both of my legs at the end of this. And just like that, Adam and Eve, they fell for this lie that God was somehow withholding something from them, uh, that, that he was keeping something from him. John Wesley, he put it this way. He said, Eve gave more credit to the word of the devil than to the word of God. Yikes. He, she gave more credit to a snake in a tree than to the face of God. And immediately, the first thing that they do after making these decisions, they choose to hide from the Lord. Uh, they sow fig leaves for themselves. Verse 8, when the cool evening breezes were blowing, the man and his wife heard the Lord God walking about in the garden. How cool is that? Um, so they hid from the Lord among the trees. And when the Lord God called to them, he said, where are you? And he replied, the man replied, I heard you walking in the garden, so I hid. I was afraid because I was naked. 
And for the very first time in all of humanity, we became scared of God. We became skeptical of God's intentions. And this, this is the story that you and I carry with us, too. This is the heritage that we inherit. This is the story that we start to, that we are born into, that we ourselves are subject to this skepticism. We are subject to this hurt, to this fear. And the, the, the fall is one thing, but the effects of the fall are completely different. I'd say that they're twofold. One is that the effects of the fall cause extreme nearsightedness. How many of you guys are nearsighted in your vision? Okay. I have the kind of vision that if I take my glasses off and I put them down <laughs> on something that has a similar color, I'm either going to need somebody else to find them <laughs> or another pair of glasses to find them, right? Uh, because I'm extremely nearsighted. I can only see things that are right in front of my face. And this is what happened when the fall happened. We only could see the things that were right in front of our face. Eve was left alone for a moment with her husband, and she forgot the face of God. She was incredibly nearsighted. And this is what happens when we are subject to the fall. We become incredibly nearsighted in our in tunnel vision into what's right in front of us, into the material things, and we lose sight of God. Uh, Paul talks about this in Philippians. He said, their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. The second effect of the fall is that the effects of the fall cause dreadful selfishness. Uh, Protestant theologian Martin Luther, he coined the phrase homo incravatas in se, which is Latin for humanity is curved inward upon itself. That humanity is curved inward upon itself, meaning that our skepticism toward God providing meaning that our first action of sowing fig leaves together and hiding from God, that's a habit that humanity never really grew out of. We never really moved past. You know, we may call it something different now. We have fancier cloth and better fruit, but we're still chasing after this one thing, self-preservation at all costs. And yet, there's still hope. There's still hope. Because this is the beauty of the garden, is that even though we stepped away from God, we were still created in God's image. You are still created in God's image. God's fingerprints are all over you. I love how King Solomon referenced this in Ecclesiastes. He made everything beautiful in its time. He also set eternity in the human heart. Meaning that you and I, we carry this peculiar image of God. And while humans are just another creature on this earth, we are not just another creature on this earth. We have distinct needs that no other creature has. 
We have distinct needs that only God can fulfill. I kind of think of it like a car key. Um, my car key goes everywhere with me. It's been in the mud and the dirt. It's also been, you know, in my purse at weddings and funerals. It's been everywhere. And, and it, can, it gets worn down. You know, it has a remote on it, so sometimes the battery wears out. <laughs> the buttons, like the images, they start to go away, and you just have to go from memory, you know. Uh, things happen to this key. But at the end of the day, there is one car. One car in the entire world that fills the grooves of this key. One car, one engine that gives this key purpose and meaning and life. One car. And in the same way, we are created for one God to fulfill our lives perfectly. Perfectly and wholly, uniquely and completely filling in the gaps of my life. And this is where Christians have some uh, clarity issues. We think that people that aren't Christians are evil somehow, uh, that they are bad. But the reality is, is that we all have the same exact needs. We're just looking in different places to fulfill them. I have the same needs as the next guy. But a Christian's call and pursuit is to fulfill them in Christ in the most adequate way that we know how. To not fall into nearsighted, selfish ways, but to completely find that our needs are met in Christ. I love how Steve Deneff puts it in this book, More Than Forgiveness. He says, The holy person, therefore, is not really different from the rest of us. Neither is he faking his righteousness. He has the same needs as the rest of us, only he gratifies them through the cross, the ultimate satisfier. Thus the curse of the garden is undone. Holiness, then, is a homecoming. The restless heart finds rest in Christ. Holiness is a homecoming. Like, there's something special about going home, isn't there? You know, no matter how much fun or how much adventure I had when I traveled other, way, other places, when I come home to my same lumpy mattress and my cluttered fridge, I'm just at peace. And I don't know if this is just me, but I never feel quite as clean as when I shower at my own house, you know? I don't know what it is. <laughs> uh, but there's something about home. Home is comfortable and natural. It's shelter. And holiness should feel like that. Holiness is a homecoming. It's returning to the garden. It's returning to the people God created us to be. It's finding our everything in him, not in this world, not in the lies, not in anything other than him. That our entire life would be complete in Jesus. And so I have a goal for this for this sermon series. Um, every single week, I want to look at a basic human need, one that is unique to humanity, a basic human need, and I want to show how we try and fail in fulfilling it in the world. And then I want to show you how God calls us to find fulfillment in him. And, and holiness can seem sometimes like this grand checklist like somehow, if I get an A on the test, I will score high and get into heaven. And that's not the case. This should be an, 
have a posture of coming home, of drawing nearer, and of feeling fulfilled. And so I want to look at five basic human needs to come home, to return to Eden, so to speak. Make sense? So the first basic need we're going to talk about today is significance. Uh, Viktor Frankl, he was a Swiss therapist that was held captive at an Auschwitz prison. And he wrote during that time there some of his findings and his reactions to all of the things that were happening. And he wrote in his journal that it was more humiliating to be ignored by a prison guard than it was to have them beat you half to death. He said it was easier to be hated by them than it was to be ignored. He said one was a sting of hatred, but to be ignored was a curse of an animal, of being non-human. In this life, we have this basic need to be known, to be significant, to be appreciated, to be recognized. You know, even evolutionists, they talk about uh, man evolving from an ape, but they would never say that man de-evolves back into an ape. You know, that would be a really scary and funny delivery room, wouldn't it? <laughs> uh, congratulations, it's a monkey! Ah! You know, <laughs> that's not going to happen. Uh, but, but we are created in the image of God, and not just in the image of God. We're created in the image of a God who longs to be significant who longs to be significant and recognized in this world. And not just in this world, but in your life. He wants to be significant in a relationship with you. And we're no different. We long to be significant and acknowledged. But the problem is, is that we look for our significance in the world. You know, we become competitive with others. You know, our calendars become packed with events that we don't even care about, but we just have to have them. You know, our motives are misguided. We try to impress people with wealth and stature. Um, I love the Aesop's fables, uh, partly because some of the ones that aren't really well known are really dark. Um, and kind of, but I have one today to share with you. Uh, there was an Aesop's fable that was written, and it was about a turtle that hung out in a pond. And the turtle got incredibly jealous of two ducks. And you'd say, why, why is that? Ducks are lame. Um, <laughs> but the turtle got really jealous because every time the ducks would fly away, they would come back and share all these stories of all the things that they had explored. And the turtle, he could travel, but not nearly as far as the ducks. And so the ducks said, okay, we'll take you on an adventure. And so they each grabbed a hold of an end of a stick with their mouths, and then told the turtle to grab the middle of the stick with his mouth. And they say, okay, it's really important. While we're on this journey, don't open your mouth. Okay? And so they start flying, and the turtle is seeing all of these things for the first time, and he's so excited. And a crow flies next to them, and he says, surely you must be the king of all turtles. And the turtle exclaimed, why, certainly. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's okay. Uh, you don't have to be a Christian to know that pride goeth before the fall, right? Um, Proverbs 16, verse 18. Pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before the fall. 
And just as Adam and Eve, they thought they could outsmart God, we think we can outsmart God and also outsmart this world. We believe that we can make people think that we're better than we are, that we're worth more than others. And ironically enough, this need to be significant in Christ, it's found in humility. It's found in knowing who you are in Christ. It's found in knowing that he created you uniquely and perfectly. Romans 12, Paul says, because of the privilege and authority God has given me, I give you each, or give each of you this warning. Don't think you're better than you really are. <laughs> Be honest in your evaluation of yourselves, measuring yourselves by the faith God has given you. I love how the message version puts it. Um, the only accurate way to understand ourselves is by what God is and by what he does for us, not by what we are and what we do for him. It says, find your identity, find your significance, find your purpose in Christ, not in this world, not in what you can do, but what has already been done for you. Paul says, don't try to be the best or the brightest. Be who God has given you the strength and talent to be. Other versions say, in accordance with the faith God has distributed. Don't be focused on what you can do for the world. Focus on what God did for you. And in humility is where we find freedom to release this sense of pride, to release this need for significance to release the notion that we have to prove ourselves. And we realize that, that we and our significance and our purpose, they are only found in Christ. That, that our significance is in Christ alone, period. Look, I could get hit by a bus tomorrow. And let me tell you, when I get to the gates where Jesus is and I look at him, I could say, you know, I had a lot of things and I did a lot of stuff. But that's not going to matter. What will matter is who Jesus is and what he has done. And I will say, Lord, thank you. St. Francis, he was asked when he was doing ministry, he was asked, why is the whole world running after you? And his reply was, because God couldn't find any more ordinary person to bless. As we embark on this journey of holiness, I want to start with this question. Why would the whole world run after you? Well, why would the whole world run after you? It, why would they, they say, that's somebody that I want to follow? Now, is it because of your relationships, romantic or otherwise? I don't know, maybe you're the next Dr. Smooch. I don't know. Um, is it because of your job? and the way that you provide for your family? Would it be because of your wealth? Would it be because of the personality that you have? Or would it be because I follow Christ with everything that I am? Would it be because my life reflects the beauty of Jesus? Paul says this, he says, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. Listen, our need for significance is, it, is found through admitting that we are only significant in Christ. 
that we are only given purpose and meaning when we see our lives in the cross to be more and more like him. And we all fall into these lies. Single folks, I feel once I have a relationship, I will be whole. No, you won't. Uh, I feel like I'll be significant once others have a good opinion of me. No, you won't. I feel like I will be complete once I complete this goal and once I have proved them wrong. No, you won't. Uh, I feel like I will be whole once I fill in the blank. No, you won't. You will not be whole until you find your significance in Christ, until you surrender your identity to him. And as we, we begin this journey, I thought it would be a great place to start by asking that question. Where do you find your significance? Do you find it in the opinions of others? Do you find it uh, in, the, in the view of yourself? Or do you find it in Jesus? Would you take a posture of prayer with me this morning? As we start this journey of holiness, what stands in my way? Where do I find my significance? Where do I find my identity? Do I find it in my own success? Do I find it in another person? Do I find it in what I do? Or do I find it in Christ? Do I find my significance in living out his calling in pursuing his face, in knowing him more and more. Lord Jesus, we ask that we would seek you and find you during this time. Lord, we know that you have our good in mind. Lord, that you want us to have a life in its fullest. Jesus, that, that you want to see us in a full, complete relationship with you. And it starts with who we are. It starts with our identity and saying, Lord, everything that I am, Lord, is yours. This morning as we we continue in worship. It's my challenge to you to look at your identity, to look at what makes you feel significant, and to lay it at the feet of Jesus and say, Lord, all I am is yours and yours alone.